0: when you feel hurt or when you feel frustrated or when you feel victimized, you know, when you wag your tail, when you're stubbornly positive, when you find something to be grateful for and you do something kind for someone else despite your situation. Fred is an example of how far you can go. In
1: 2010, Sergeant Craig Grossi was a Marine in a remote part of Afghanistan who found a dog, or maybe that dog found him. Either way, that dog is now known as Fred, and together they are Craig and Fred. Their book, titled Craig and Fred, A Marine, A Stray Dog, and How They Rescued Each Other, was released in 2017 and tells the story of their time together in Afghanistan, the task of getting Fred back to Craig's home in Virginia, and the cross-country journey that they take together along with their friend Josh. Thanks for listening to another episode of Pelham Place. I know it's been a while since my last episode, and I promise that I'm getting caught up and hoping to get on a more consistent release schedule soon. If you're just checking out the show for the first time, please be sure to hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts. As you've probably already guessed, in this episode, I sit down for an early morning conversation with Craig Grossi, author of the book, Craig and Fred. I had the privilege of meeting Craig and Fred a little over a year ago, and I can't say enough about how inspiring their story is. Fred is still sleeping.
0: Fred's still sleeping, but I'm, I think he'll come up in a second. Come here, Fred.
1: But listen in as we start out talking about their buddy Josh and then get into Craig's personal story of joining the Marines, how he met Fred in Afghanistan, and one of my favorite stories from the book. And be sure to listen all the way through because Craig gives us a preview of his new book, Second Chances, set to be released in March of 2021. Thanks again for checking out Pelham Place. Sit back, grab a drink, and enjoy this conversation with Craig Grossi. I was reading the book I wasn't really expecting the range of emotions
0: mm-hmm.
1: so uh, you know there were definitely some moments in the book where it hit me um, obviously because my brother uh, was also a marine and so I know mm-hmm. um, I can I can imagine that he had some very similar experiences and uh, so you get to those points in the book and you know the the emotion is there and, and yeah I, I really appreciated that and then I love the way the uh you know just the way the book's written, the the way that you kind of jump back and forth between chapters. it was just really cool to to follow those those journeys and each stop and and uh you know read about the challenges and and the yeah the camaraderie that that took place during that uh that journey. Yeah. Uh, I didn't realize that that you and Josh hadn't really known each other. <laughs> uh, you know uh, just a few months before that right. really
0: happened right right yeah yeah like I'd never I'd never been to his apartment he'd never been to to mine you know like we had just we had had, had some beers after class you know and, and I think we'd gone to like a caps game that was like the most you know like going to a hockey game with me is a if you could survive it you know we, we can be friends but because I, I get I get especially caps games I get I get very into it and I think that's what kind of bonded us was he He got some tickets through his work and, and we went together and, and, um, uh, we were pretty, pretty close after that. But yeah, we weren't, we had only known each other a couple of months. And, um, but there, when I saw him, um, that night at the pug at our favorite bar, um, I could tell he was just kind of like, he just looked beat up, you know, and, and mentally and, and, um, I kind of felt the same way, you know, but I had, I saw an opportunity for that summer. Um, cause I had, you know, I I read about it, how I, the VA back pay had just come in, you know? So like I, I had gone from just scraping by, you know, like literally, you know, saving half a can of tuna, you know, in my fridge, you know, <laughs> uh, to like, you know, Oh, this is a good little chunk of money. It might as well have been a million dollars to me. And, and, uh, so I bought that Land Cruiser, and um, you know, which was just a dream car of mine. And um, I'm the second owner of that thing too. It's an eighty-eight, oh, wow. yeah, which is just unheard of. Um, and I still have it. She's she's resting. She's a you know she's done her time. Um, so I'm looking for I we we're the house we're we're gonna get um, up in Maine has a big garage. I'm looking forward to giving her some TLC but uh, anyway yeah i mean it, it it just felt like wait a minute i i i shouldn't do this alone you know like i shouldn't just be me and fred um you know and th- here is someone who who clearly you know needs um needs like a, an adventure you know i mean josh had josh was young he's younger than me he's like at least 3 or 4 years younger than me um and when i think he was only like 24 when he lost his leg, um, you know, and that was in, 2009.
1: 2009.
0: Yep, the year before I was there. He might have even been younger than that. And you know, and his life had just like taken one kind of crazy turn after another, between between you know between losing his leg and then all the follow up surgeries, you know, and and then all of a sudden you know finding himself in DC, after you know while he after leaving um the hospital and uh and it just seemed like hey man like let's let's go see this country that we you know served um and and it just felt like it it totally made made perfect sense um and i can't imagine that summer without him it's
1: an amazing story and um well before we get too far into it why don't we uh why don't we talk a little bit about how, how you decided to get into the Marines and, uh, and how you met Fred and we'll talk a little bit about the, about the
0: journey after. Great. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I, Marines were, were, you know, we're not really exposed to me, even growing up in DC or around in the suburbs of DC in Northern Virginia. Um, You know, I'm sure that we had neighbors who were Marines, but uh, you know, just growing up around here, service was really kind of instilled in me at an early age. Um, my dad was in the Air Force during Vietnam, um, and he deployed o- overseas um, in support of, of, of some of those missions. And um, and then got out, went to college, and then uh, became an investigator with the National Transportation Safety Board. And so he dedicated, you know, every day when he woke up and went to work, he served something that was that was greater than himself. You know, and and that was kind of what was instilled in me, and and um, and as I started to get through high school, I, you know, I realized, you know, I, I, I my grades were terrible, and, uh, you know, it's just C's, C's and D's, mostly D's, and, um, you know, most of my friends by junior year seemed like they had their whole life mapped out, and, the idea of more school just made me sick, um, and so I started thinking about other options, and, um, the first time I really remember seeing a Marine was at a career fair at, at, at my high school, at Robinson High School, and and they had all the branches come and, uh, you know, they all gave a slideshow and, and had all these reasons why you should join their branch. And the Marine was the last one. And, and he got up in his dress blues and he looked around the, the crowded auditorium and was like, maybe three or four of you have what it takes, you know, to be a Marine. And if you think you're one of them, come talk to me. And he left. And that like that's that nailed me, and uh, I, I love telling that story now because knowing years later, knowing what I know about recruiters, you know, like the, that, I, I like to, to to joke with myself that you know, that he was running short on time, you know, or he forgot his thumb drive and you know, like have his slideshow with him, and that was his little hip pocket, you know, lasso that he throws out there to see if there's any suckers, and you know, I was, I was one because it worked, it, it wasn't until wasn't until 2002 I graduated high school in 2001 um and my dad begged me to try college first so he, he, you know he, he enrolled me in um Northern Virginia Community College he, he thinking um you know maybe the college setting would be better for me academically and and it wasn't <laughs> you know I still was just not down with the classroom and and, uh, and especially after 911 um I was I became really frustrated I was like I'm I should already be in the military um you know and and so I just kind of uh got you know just made my way through those two semesters and and as fast as I could and and then joined and was off to boot camp um in early early 2003 and um and very quickly just fell in love with the marine corps I was you know drawn a, a lot the more i researched the other branches after my initial kind of exposure in that career day thing uh the more i was drawn to the marine corps because it seemed like a place where you weren't going to fall through the cracks um they were going to get the best out of you every day and i wanted that i i love that about sports i've been a hockey player and an athlete my whole life and and i love the idea you know the, the tangible give and take the more you practice the more you work out the more you Research an opponent, you know, or think about, you know, maneuvers and stuff like that on the ice. The better you get, and 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 with school, uh, I had worked very hard. You know, like I I worked hard for my C's and D's. You know, <laughs> uh, some I, of us I, had to. Yeah, man. I mean, I stayed after school. I did extra stuff. Like I retook tests. Like I like I I was in a like a special class where like they would accommodate, you know, my my learning disability that they said I had and and um and and I still, you know, it didn't it didn't get back uh what I was putting in and I I, I craved that and so um you know a boot camp like, you know, for all the craziness and shouting and stuff it it, it felt like I was where I was supposed to be for you know, for the first time really um in my life and and uh and and then it was a little bit of a letdown when I found out the job I was getting. I joined to go into, um, I thought I was going to be a military police officer because um, I was interested in law enforcement as a kid. And, and um, you know, I wanted my idea of my career was I'd be a military police officer. I'd go overseas and like help train foreign, mil- foreign police forces. And I'd get a dog, you know, like a canine, you know, and like. And then I find out I'm gonna be working in a prison, you know, and they call them Briggs. And I was like, I didn't even know what a Brig was, you know, and I wasn't gonna get a dog. And that job barely deploys, f ever, you know, and here we are kicking off, you know, two wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I was like, are you kidding me? Um, so my first four years, I, I made the most of it. I, I, I ended up de- deploying, cause I wouldn't shut up about it. Um, but the most, the, the, the deployment that I got was to Gitmo. Um, and I was a guard in camp delta um and which brought a whole other you know um, you know kind of round of frustrations and and uh things that you know I had to deal with and and uh but i I was grateful to have- at least after that first deployment felt like I was contributing um to the effort you know in terms of the wars and conflicts and um but I came home and and was back in Charleston at the, at the Navy brig I was working at and, and just kind of going through the motions and, and, um, and waiting t- till I could, my contract as a military police corrections guy, um, brig guard uh, was over so I could switch jobs. I wanted out. I I loved being a Marine, but I hated that job. That just wasn't for me. Um, and all the respect in the world for people that, that do that as a career. Um, it's just for me, it just, it, it, uh, it didn't, it didn't click. Um, and so that was when I found the world of, of, of intelligence and um, specifically for me, counterintel and in, in human intelligence and I boarded and trained uh, into that field. And from the next, you know, year and a half, it was, you know, getting through all the courses down in Virginia beach and some in Maryland. Um, and then working up for a deployment to Afghanistan. And, you know, as soon as I found myself in that field, it was like, all right, I I, I knew I loved being a Marine. I didn't like what I was doing. Now I, I love everything about being a Marine. And I have this job that for me combined kind of who I was as a person, especially like, as a kid, like and you know, I was, I've always been very outgoing, always been very confident, always been able to make friends, you know, wherever I go and, and regardless of, you know, seeming, you know, cultural boundaries, like my high school was huge and there were kids from all over the world there. And, and uh, I always took pride in the fact that I, you know, I I had friends kind of in all the different circles. Um, And as an intelligence Marine, I kind of learned how to, I kind of learned how to put techniques behind, you know, some of the everyday social interactions that, that, um, you know, we do with each other and, and just use it use it to learn information and, and it, turn it into intelligence that that could save, save lives and shape a battlefield. Um, so yeah, so I'm in, in Afghanistan in the summer of, of 2010, and I end up with a, with a, a team of recon Marines. And, uh, this is just after kind of a, the, the big operation in Marja. And, uh, we we did the first pump we did with, uh, I did with those guys was out around Marja kind of mopping up a lot of the Taliban that had fled after the big push through Marja and uh these real wild areas where they you know the people were just really being taken advantage of uh, by the Taliban and and I just you know tried to keep up with those recon guys taking as many notes as I could and and um and talking to as many villagers as, as I could and and um questioning and um interrogating uh, the any uh, Taliban that we captured and and they they saw that I was ready to do the work and that I could keep up and and so they made me a permanent part of their team and after after Trek after Treknawa we went into Sangin and, uh, and
1: so that's really I just want to make sure that people yeah. understand like the whole human intelligence mm-hmm. job is really you're you're the data collector you're the person yeah. that's out in the communities, wherever it is you are, talking to people, so you've got to you've got to learn the language. Mm-hmm. you've got to learn probably like some of the slang to know like what these what you're hearing around you as you're you're going through these these communities. Mm-hmm. And you're I would guess you're probably out there a lot during the day, you know, under you know in, in the daylight, so you're you're easily seen. Yeah. Um, that's it's a very different perspective that you hear from a lot of uh, a lot of the stories that come back from Afghanistan where you you hear about the operations taking place at night. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just want people to to know like that that human intelligence aspect is really so important because, you know, you were out there gathering the information to bring back to the unit um, so that they could put together those nighttime operations. Correct.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and that was, that's a good point. Cause I was kind of doing both. I was kind of this during the day, you know, uh, if we happened to do a day patrol or just during the day when villagers were out walking around, you know, whatever compound we were in for the, that time, you know, I was the guy and if anybody walked up or event, or, you know, they, they would come talk to me. Um, so it was kind of this overt, yeah. Like here, you know, go go talk to Craig. You know, he's the intel guy or he's the head guy. And and then um, at night, when we would do night patrols, because essentially what they like, what the recon guys like to do, was take we would take fire during the day, especially in saying we would take fire all day, and they would keep track of where the fire was coming from. And then when the sun went down, we would put together a small team and we would patrol right into that area wherever we were getting shot at from that day and um and then and, and it i found we found that it was the people the, if we came across villagers at night they were more likely to talk to talk to us at night than they were during the day um because it felt safer for them and so i got some of my best information at night but we were just knocking on doors we were we were even if we knew there was a, you know, a talib. even if we got a tip from a villager that there's some Taliban fighters in a house, we would just walk up and knock on the door, um, you know, and see what they did. Um, And, uh, yeah, so it was it was like I kind of I wore a lot of hats. Um, Sometimes I was just listen, you know, to, to, to the two Afghan uh, farmers kind of fight about land or you know, or a well that they shared or, you know, something like that. And, and just kind of let them air out their grievances. And, um, and, and when it, came, when it came to the language, I learned, you know, very quickly that I was only going to be able to really pick up bits and pieces. I mean, they took us to some language courses, but they were very much more cultural courses, which I think was smart because the posh tune is just, even the, the, the dialect in, in Helmand is, is like, you know, uh, hard for people from the other parts of Afghanistan to 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 pick up. And and um, I had some incredible interpreters that I, I got really close with. And and so for me it was I was able to to yeah like focus on some of the slang or keywords or things that guys said. And then I would maybe ask a follow-up question if they said something about that. And then I could also their their body language is incredible. The way they they tilt their heads and use their hands um, and their eye contact and the sincerity in their communication. A lot of times I'd end up holding hands with them while we talked, you know, and, and that it was just incredible to make that connection. Um, and I really valued that time, um, with the people there. And, um, yeah, so it was, it was just this kind of total immersive situation where, I mean, I, even during the day, um, yeah, I would, t- I would, I would drop my guard, you know, I would put my weapon down and take my helmet off and, my body armor if we were there long enough and, and, um, you know, really connect with, with people. And, and I like to think that it, you know, it saved, saved lives. It saved Marines lives and Afghani people's lives too. Um, Absolutely. cause they would show us where the IDs were, stuff like that.
1: It's really interesting to hear you tell that story. And then to think of just, yeah, uh, you know, my own experience just traveling within the United States and knowing that when I travel, um, I like to do what the locals do. Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know and and it it's kind of that same concept you want to find out you know about the area that you're in and and, yeah um it's just to hear hear the way you put it that's exactly what it reminds me of is yeah you don't don't want to go to the TGI
0: Fridays
1: you want to go to you know to to the local restaurant yeah, and, and exactly. eat the local food and yeah so.
0: yeah it was like the Anthony Bourdain of Hellman province <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah and and so uh
1: at at some point your time in saying you uh you came across a dog
0: mm-hmm. yeah. uh
1: who we now know as as Fred I know let's see you can wake up
0: come here Fred <laughs> come here bud get up in a second um yeah so yeah that, of course as if things weren't complicated enough and and saying and i you know this here comes this funny uh this funny little dog trotting across the battlefield and we had all spotted him at one point or another um those first two weeks were were pretty intense um you know the taliban were really they had a lot of resources they had a lot of numbers they had great cover and concealment um, to launch, uh, attacks on our, on our spot. And, um, and I, through, you know, the grace of the grace of God, some luck and what I really attribute to just a really incredible leadership and bravery from those recon guys, we didn't lose a guy, um, while units around us, you know, hadn't been as lucky. Um, those guys were able to, whether we would have you know 150 to 200 fighters attacking our little compound, the best we could have just because of how the compound was laid out, and there's only two rooftop positions that would face the the where the attack was coming from. We could maybe have eight Marines fighting back, wow and that's that takes that takes a lot of things, but the biggest one I think it takes is discipline, because they would let them they would let them get comfortable. They would let the Taliban kind of fall into place and, and maybe think that they had them pinned down. Meanwhile, they're communicating the whole time about and exposing themselves to, so they could see you know, where they were moving and shooting from. And then, and then when we would, if we did call in artillery or when we did return fire, we knew, they knew exactly where to point everybody's guns. And that was just incredible. Um, and after about two weeks, the Taliban was like, we heard them, you know, talking over the radio, like just don't go, don't fight those guys, <laughs> like fight <laughs> go down the road, you know, and fight somebody else. Like it's don't just, they started just literally avoiding us and they started to just, instead of fighting us, they just emplaced IEDs, mm-hmm. they tried to, to li- they tried to limit our movement. So they, they were just out there emplacing IEDs, just a huge belt around us and, um, and yeah, in the middle of all that was this dog, um, you know. And, and I'd be cleaning my gun and uh, getting some water, and, and I'd see him kind of trotting around, and it would always just make me smile because he was so unlike any other dog I'd seen, um, and just so unlike his environment. Um, you know, he had this glow about him, and this this it was like he was gliding, you know, through the dust, um, and it just made me made me smile. And so, um, yeah, after after everything kind of calmed down, I walked over to him and, and, uh, you know, I, I, I just couldn't help it. I, I, you know, I had a piece of beef jerky and I was like, let's just see, let's see what he does, you know? And, and I've always been a dog, a dog lover. And, uh, although I never had one of my own, um, my dad, my dad said, uh, you know, I couldn't have a dog when I was a kid. Cause he would, you know, the classic dad line is, you know, I'm going to end up walking it. I'm going to end up taking care of it. So I, and I could never quite get past that no matter how hard I tried, um, and so I, I go walking towards him with a piece of beef jerky, and and I hear this thump 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 thump, you know, and and uh, he's wagging his tail, and I was about to turn around because as I got closer to him, he was covered in bugs. I could see, you know, all the bugs crawling on him, and his fur was all matted and dust, and and uh, and uh, you know, I was like, you can't just, you know, walk up on a dog like this. He's not going to be friendly to you and he's not like a dog back home and, and then I heard that whap 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 you know coming from him and, and I saw that tail wagging I was like all right you know I'll give him a shot and got a little closer and and um, held the jerky out and he surprised me again because just as gently as he could he stood up and and with his front teeth he very politely kind of accepted the jerky you know almost like with a bow you know and he chewed it very contently and slowly, despite obviously being starving you know and and that just blew me away because I mean even the best behaved best you know well-fed dog back home will take a ring off your finger for a piece of jerky you know and here this guy is you know starving and and, um, and he still had these manners and uh I gave him some rubs and kind of talked to him for a little bit and and what's amazing about that moment and I think anybody that that, that loves animals or appreciates animals you know uh can attest to this it's like just in that moment just talking to him and kind of giving him a rub and a little attention like the all the chaos and violence and and uncertainty around me kind of melted away you know and that's what that's what dogs do that's what animals do for us you know and and um but just as quickly as it melted away it kind of snapped back and I was like wait a minute like you can't just you know I wasn't sure how the recon guys would feel about it you know I didn't want to push it so I stood up and started walking back to where my stuff is and and I feel a little poke down at my heel and and uh it was Fred you know and he's what he he didn't have his name yet but here you know he's following me back to my stuff and um one of the other marines said hey looks like you made a friend but I misheard him um I heard hey he looks like a Fred and so uh I was like yeah we'll call him Fred Fred works and uh so that's that's how he got his name it was kind of by accident and he was instantly a part of the of the unit everybody loved him um when we would go on night patrols he would follow along and and kind of herd us through the fields and through the canals and never barked or gave us away and um when it came time to uh to get extracted and brought back to to camp leatherneck for a little break everybody was like you gotta try we gotta try to get him out we gotta figure out a way and and uh I was terrified uh but we we did it, we made it happen
1: <laughs> and and so that's that actually is one of the questions I wanted to ask you, because obviously, in the book, which was released in uh twenty seventeen right uh-huh. yeah october um, so obviously, the big turning point in the book is uh and I'm sure your life in general is chapter eight extraction mm-hmm. um you know, it's, it's really the moment of truth, whether or not Fred's going to go along with the plan. And you really did just kind of leave it up to him, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've always been big on stuff like that. Like, if it's meant to be, you know, like, you'll know. Um, And I didn't want to feel like, like, I was making him do something. Like, I didn't want to feel like I was stealing him, or kidnapping him, you know, or dog napping him. And, and uh, I wanted it to be clear to me that this is what he wanted. Um, and I thought the best way to do that is if he follows us to the helicopter, that will be, that'll be it, you know, because, I mean, they have to train our, our military working dogs to, to, to run through the dust and noise and, you know, run up the back of a waiting helicopter. It's like if this stray dog isn't scared off by the dust and noise and chaos of a combat extraction, then like, this is obviously, you know, he's dedicated to us, you know, he, he really feels like I'm his guy, you know, and, and uh, that will be a, you know, the, all I'll need to see. And uh, yeah, so yeah, we, we, the, the bird came in it was a little bit of a brownout. So it was even more chaotic. Um, and uh and we're running through the, through the dust. And I'm just trying to keep my eye on, on the guy in front of me. So I don't lead the stick off in the, to the, you know, to the side. And, and, um, and I feel that poke again down at my heel. And, and I look down and there he is and he's clearly very, very afraid, you know, he's mm-hmm. terrified, but he's coming, you know, and it was, that was it. And I had a duffel bag in my pocket and uh, our master sergeant um, top, um Schmidt comes running up behind me and and grabs Fred by the back of the neck and I opened the bag in the wind and we just put him in there and zipped it closed and ran him up the back of the of the helicopter and um I'll never forget sitting down because we didn't they they had those little those little bench seats and those um CH-53s but we couldn't sit in them because we had these big rucks on so we would just ride on the floor and uh we're all sitting there in the back of this helicopter after over a month in the, in the field, you know, we've all got beards and, and we're just caked in, in weeks and weeks of dust and dirt. And, uh, and I look around that helicopter, all these big Marines with all of our guns and gear. And I, all I see is teeth. All I see is smiles because they know, you know, between my legs and this duffel bag, I got him, you know, I got Fred and they're all just so excited um and he kind of squirmed around a little bit i stuck my hand in there and gave him a rub and and he settled down and uh and uh we were we were off and it was like it for me it was it was this you know kind of one two punch of like yeah joy you know like yeah okay we got him and then i realized what i had done and that now you know i was taking him from this place that was dangerous for us but safer for him comparatively to a place that was safer for me, but l- lethal for him. You know, if, if I got caught, he was gone, you know, he'd be put down and, um, and I could get in trouble, but I wasn't so much worried about that. I would have felt awful if I had essentially killed him by trying to save him. And so the responsibility of that really kind of sunk in. And I was like, man, this is going to take, every bit of, of scheming and and maneuvering that that you can, that you can do. And, and, uh, I was ready. I was ready to do it, but I was, the anxiety was, was definitely pretty high.
1: And it, it wasn't like you were both going home together. I mean, Mm -hmm. you were, you were just extracting out of one region to Leatherneck making arrangements for him to get home. And then you were still, you were still deployed.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean I realized like that like, the the tricky thing was you know in any situation like this you look for you look for people who had done something similar and so you try to try to learn how they did it right like people so I I researched like people who had gotten animals out of Iraq or Afghanistan and every story I came across they all had the same thing in common they were on a fob or a base for the duration of their deployment and they met their dog or cat or donkey. There's a guy that sent a donkey home and, uh, and they had a year, eight months or however long to, to work it out, you know, and like raise money back home and and get the paperwork. And I, yeah, I didn't have that, that luxury. We were on Leatherneck for like two weeks at a time. And then we were out to Sangin and then back and back and back, you know, and, and, I was like, yeah, the only way I'm going to get this done is, is, is to be a little shifty, you know, and be a little, uh, um, you know, just to push the limits, I think of, 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 uh, you know, of our, the ethics, I guess you could say, or whatever, you know, like I, I just, it was going to have to just get it done. I didn't have the luxury of time and, uh, and so yeah, it came down to a lot of luck though, because the guys there was a um, uh, a contingent of DHL workers from the shipping company that had that had literally set up shop while we were gone. Like they weren't even there when we left. Oh. Wow. Uh, and they were they were my saviors. They were Fred's saviors because they they're the only option for shipping that I could have used because the postal service you know is run by the the DoD. So. Um, these guys were all from the Philippines and different African countries. And like they did, they loved Fred, you know, they loved the idea of, of taking care of him while I figured it out. So, um, you know, I, I snuck him over there and, and they, they brought him in and and I had to go back to Sangin after, after a week and a half, two weeks, I don't remember exactly how long it was. And, um, and they watched him for me and, and, um, and I ended up getting hurt on the next mission to Sangin, and And that ended up being a blessing. Cause I got, I came out earlier out of the field a little earlier and had to recover from a um you know a blow to the head and and um but then you know it was just a matter of um uh, getting through that and then I could take care of the paperwork and and get the get the kennel and get him on the plane and get him out it's an amazing story mm-hmm. um thank you, I, you know, we we definitely don't want to
1: don't don't want to have you recap the whole yeah, um, process right. i can definitely tell people that uh you know if if you haven't read the book, go read this book because uh what happens through that process and and the people that were involved and the way that that people um got behind uh you and Fred to to make this work was just amazing in itself. Um, but then eventually you you come home. Uh, Fred's already at home and and being taken care of by your dad of all people yeah made himself right at home too yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and you come home
0: and you go uh you go to georgetown right yeah yeah after after i i uh i transitioned out of the marines i got a job with the dia um and did that for like about two years and was just became kind of frustrated um for my own reasons, you know, and and uh, just didn't feel like I was getting anywhere. Uh, I think I had a misguided kind of perception of how long that trajectory of that career would take. And I, but I, for whatever reason, I just didn't feel um, like it was the right place for me. And 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 yeah, and I, I on a whim kind of applied to Georgetown, you know, uh, you know, almost hoping that I would wouldn't get in so I could you know continue to kind of hate on college you know and like, oh, college isn't for me but then i get in and i'm like oh well i guess i gotta go you know <laughs> <laughs> um and uh i couldn't the, my very first class uh was a writing class and um and i i just instantly was in love and, and uh, felt at home in the classroom and i was like, who are you? Like I, I just didn't I had never felt that way before about an academic environment. And um and, and I just knew, you know, it was very similar to when I found human intelligence in the Marines, it was like, this is this is where I'm supposed to be, you know, and and um, you know, that's I think that's just what's interesting about life. It's like if you you if you're on the wrong path, you know, or you're in the wrong place or, you know, you make some mistakes like you know what it feels like, and then when you have the right thing going for you, you know that you know that even more because you know what it feels like when you have you know when you're in the wrong, and and um, that's that just I felt that for the first time since Afghanistan, and uh, I just I I left the DIA after my first semester, um, and went full time to Georgetown, and uh, and really just yeah I had a great time and was challenged. Um, you know, in, in all the right ways. It was awesome.
1: Now, that
0: writing class, is that the class where you met Josh? That was my, jo- I met Josh in my second class. So I, I, okay. I had, it was, um, I was, cause my first semester, they made me be, I was, Um, what's the word? Where you're like, essentially, you know, it was a trial semester and I had to make a certain, I had to pass, like, I think I get like a B plus or higher my first semester. So they only let me take two classes. And my second class was, um, was where I met Josh. And it was a, uh, a modern borders class, which was fascinating to learn, oh about, you know, the just borders of countries and how they've been shaped. And um, that was cool. Yeah. So that's yeah, the second class was when I walked in and met, met Josh.
1: In the book it explain, you explain that, that Josh was, uh, that you knew right away when mm-hmm. you saw him in the class, you were, you were, you were connected um and there were there were some signs there that you knew that that he was also a vet Mm -hmm. um but he wasn't marine and you were you were able to tell Mm -hmm. that he was army yeah by his backpack right
0: yeah he had a lot of like a you know I always give army people a hard time because they love their they love their patches you know and it's like it looked like a boy scout troop you know he had all these different patches on it and he had uh you know, just, it, it, yeah, it was just kind of a, a giveaway. And, and, um, and I, so it was pretty, yeah, it was pretty obvious. And, and he always says, you know, he could tell I was a Marine, you know, cause I, uh, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't figure out how to work the doorknob on the door or something like that. And so, you know, he, <laughs> um, yeah, it was, it was cool. And, and we instantly kind of had that bond, you know, between just giving each other, giving each other a hard time. And, um, we still do. Um, and, uh, yeah, that was that was cool, and it was yeah not you know, not the place you know again just a surprising place to make a make a, a veteran connection. Um, was in a classroom at Georgetown, you know, and, mm-hmm. um, and but to give Georgetown a lot of credit, I made a lot of friends who were uh, who were combat veterans and veterans at, at Georgetown because they did an incredible job and still do of um, of bringing bringing veterans in and and giving us a chance um where a lot of the other schools I talked to because every once in a while I would get the idea like all right I'm going to try college and I would go in and I would you know and I, and I or I would have a phone call and I would talk to an advisor or a dean and they would look at my record and be like yeah we'll give you a couple credits here and there and Georgetown was the first one where I sat down with the dean and he was a veteran the dean of the, of the school of continuing studies and he was like yeah I'm going to give you credit for literally everything on your doD transcript and and even these college classes you took back in two thousand three, like yeah, you, yeah, you got it, you know, and they gave me like the benefit of the doubt that's it felt like I got a fair shake and that was that was huge to feel like they were invested in me too um, and I met yeah, and there was lots of lots of veterans there with the same kind of experience at Georgetown.
1: How long between the time you met Josh until the time you guys? set out across the country?
0: Um, like a year and a half probably okay. cause I, I started at Georgetown in the fall of 2013 and then so 2013, 2014. So yeah, like maybe, maybe closer to two years because <laughs> it was the summer of 2015 that I, that we went on that road trip. Um, cause Josh had graduated that year he was class of 15. Um, and I was going to graduate the following year. I was class of 16. Um, so he had already graduated, but he was having a hard time, um, finding a job. He was going on lots of interviews, but he was still, he still needed surgeries on his leg on the, on his left leg. Um, cause he had taken a lot of shrapnel and a lot of trauma to that. And he needed, you know, to take, You know, after surgery, take weeks and weeks off to recover, and and no one was really um, down to you know to hire him and then let him take all this time off, um, no matter how much how badly he needed it. Uh, So he was frustrated, you know, and unsure of what you know he was going to do after school, and um, and I was kind of like, this is my last summer before I go back to school. Um, I want to, and I loved telling this story of Fred, and I had this you know dream um in in my head you know that i could write it and i could be an author and i could tell it and i could make it my job and i wanted to put it to the test it was kind of like how i put fred to the test you know if he follows me to the helicopter i'll know this is what i'm supposed to do um and you know i knew after that summer you know i would just literally tell the story everywhere i went and um and if if after that summer I knew that that you know that that people had responded to it in in big ways and that I felt you know still so in love with the idea of telling it that 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 was what I was supposed to do and I I wouldn't pursue a career um, you know in the intelligence world and and so we both kind of had things we wanted to to kind of shake out over the course of that summer and and uh, yeah I was it was really really excited to do that
1: and I think what was really cool about uh that journey is is you both had like you said you both had your reasons for for wanting to to make that trek across the country and just really get to see uh the united states you know you you guys have traveled the world and the marines and seen all these other areas and hadn't really uh seen seen home Mm -hmm. um and, and you know i thought the interesting part of that was that you were you were very clear that this was going to be, an, you know, a a, a backroads trip. This wasn't yeah. going to be, you know, an interstate uh, cross country thing. We were going to take the backroads. We're gonna right. we're gonna we're gonna find the the beauty of of the country in a way that yeah. not, most people don't do. And um, and the interesting part about that is the fact that Josh has a, a robotic prosthetic. Mm-hmm. With a three-day battery life, mm-hmm. and it, at one point in the book, that actually really comes into play, mm-hmm. um, where the the battery almost doesn't make it, right, um, or, or or doesn't make
0: it really. I think it, yeah, it was yeah, it was the and he it broke. Yeah, it was when we were in Redwood National Forest, and we had hiked a long hike in, and um, found a campsite, but and and um, he. Knelt down into, in like a little gravel bed near a riverbank to put up a tarp because it started to rain, and um, and he got some little stones in the joint in his in the knee, and it just threw the whole thing off. Um, and I and the, and uh, and he had really pushed pushed the limits of that of that particular prosthetic, and um, and it just completely malfunctioned, and he had to turn the actual robotic part off. Um, the part that kind of breaks for him as he's going down and just as, as a normal stride, it kind of acts like a knee. Um, he had to, to turn that part off. And then the next day we were planning on spending a couple, you know, two days out in the redwoods. Um, but the next morning we woke up and, and had to, had to hike out. Um, and he had to do it with essentially a peg leg. Um, cause it just, his, it locked when he did that, it locked the joint. And so he's got his ruck on and he just had to, had to peg leg it out. So that puts an unbelievable amount of stress on his left leg. Um, you know, that his good leg and, and, um, and come here, Fred. Oh, he's up. <laughs> hey, buddy. Hey, good morning. Come here. Yeah. Oh, there he is. There he is. Hey, Fred. Yeah. Good morning. <laughs> good morning. Good boy. All right. You want to get that? Okay.
1: <laughs> it's like it's too early for all that attention. I know. Yeah. Good man.
0: Good boy. He's looking for my dad. You were upset. No, I was upset. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so
1: um, it, it, it's uh, it, so you mentioned having to really peg leg it out. And yeah. that brings me to one of my favorite chapters of the book. Which is uh, what I believe was probably like the first uh, first week or so of the trip, um, where you guys ended up in Clarksdale, Mississippi. Mm-hmm. So the chapter is is chapter five. It's titled "The Delta Blues," mm-hmm. um, and me being from the South, I I I love some blues, and um, wh- I, I knew right away that there was going to be a good story here. Yeah, and uh, so, so the way I understand it, you guys ended up at at you got checked into, to a, a motel, mm-hmm. um, left Fred, uh, you guys went out to get some food and, and listen to some good music and yeah. didn't really get the, the experience you expected and ended up in another juke joint.
0: Yeah. Well, cause we had heard about, I think it was some, you know, I love, I love a travel show. I think I already referenced Anthony Bourdain. Like I love all of those travel shows and I'd seen on one of, I think it was an Anthony Bourdain where he went to Morgan Freeman has, Juke joint down there, and uh, so we we aimed for that one and and we went in, and it was it was very cool, very interesting, but very much kind of a recreation, I think, of what that area is is famous for, among other things. And you know, just because you could tell it's like it was kind of like being in a cracker barrel where everything is you know is made to look a certain way, but it what but it wasn't you know, it hadn't earned that that. That kind of tinge that you know that comes with time, you know you can't recreate the the effects of of time and and as we were leaving, you know we had a couple of drinks and got a bite to eat and listened to an incredible performance um, at, at at that, that joint and uh, as we were leaving, we heard sound kind of just oozing out of another spot further down this alley and uh, it wasn't really an alley it was a, just an, another side street um. And it just was this little place that just seemed to kind of be thumping with with the the beat and uh, and and the guitar and we we heard it before we saw it which was kind of kind of cool because if you could have just walked right by it um, if it, if it hadn't been for the sound coming out of it but there was no sign you know there was just a little red light out front and this it, it's one of those we've all been to those places where you're like is this it is this okay? You know, cause it's not welcoming, you know? Um, and it was this corrugated metal door with a piece of rope on it and you pulled the rope and it opened up and, and, and just, you just got hit in the face with, with music, you know? And, wow. and, um, and we knew, all right, this is, you know, we found it. And, you know, like the ceiling is like super low. You could just touch it with your hand and, the The guy behind the bar was this, you know, this big, this big, big black guy with like awesome sunglasses on and there weren't even any refrigerators and he just had coolers behind the bar. If I remember correctly, and it was just, they were just iced down coolers, you know, full of beer and, and wine. And, and uh, we were like, all right, you know, this we're here, you know, and we sat there for hours just listening and 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 talking to everybody we could. And, um, and we shut the place down. Um, and it was, yeah, it was an incredible night for for both of us. And the bartender ended up being the owner of the, the bar, right? Yeah, yeah, he was that was Red. That was the guy. Yeah, he was, um, yeah, he and uh, he was, you know, I he meets, you know, obviously meets a lot of people and has a lot of conversations, but I think it's not every day that that, um, uh, that a guy like Josh walks in, mm-hmm. uh, and, and uh, and he was instantly, when he noticed um, that Josh had a, had a prosthetic leg was just kind of on him, you know, like, hey, you know, and he was kind of curious about it. And we come to find out that it was because he had a family member that, uh, that also had lost a leg. Um, and he was so kind of uh, just really wanted to, Josh to make a connection with him, um, which I thought was, was really beautiful. Um and so he calls the his it was his cousin, um Riley calls him up and has him has him come down, you know, and this is after the musicians had cleared out, you know, and like the all the people had left, you know, and and it was just ended up just being me and Josh and Red and his cousin there and the two and and uh it was like you know like late June at this point and in in, in in Mississippi. And this guy walks in and he's wearing pants, you know? And like, he see the first thing he sees is Josh and he's wearing shorts and he's showing, cause he's not hiding to him. It's like, you, you're not hiding your, your leg. Like what's, you know, why not? You know? And, and he felt so ashamed of, of his prosthetic and it felt probably felt like it was, you know, a vulnerability that he didn't want to put out there. Um, and so he pulls up his, you know, he pulls up the leg of his pants and uh, we instantly see this Dallas Cowboys star on on his on the the fiberglass part of his prosthetic, and like, oh yeah, now we see why you wear it, pants, you know. <laughs> and, pretty funny. Uh, um, and then I just I just I honestly it was uh, you know just kind of sat back um, and and observed Josh and and this guy who he had just met really just like bond instantly over this shared um, you know, this shared thing that they both have to deal with every day, um, that missing a, a, a major part of their body. Um, and that was really, really beautiful. And I'm so glad that you, you know, you really picked up on, on the significance of, of that, that night.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I think it really plays into the whole theme of the book, which is the stubborn positivity and, and, you know, um, there are so many, different aspects in the book that that bring that in and i thought that one was really cool because it wasn't it wasn't craig and fred it was really riley and josh Mm -hmm. josh and riley and Mm -hmm. um and you even mentioned it at the end of the chapter where you know this was one of the the rare instances where you didn't have fred with you so Mm -hmm. there really was no point of conversation for you, right. um, you know, when you have Fred with you, people recognize Fred, and they want to know the story and right. and it, it makes it easy for you to, to tell that story. And in this point, you didn't have Fred, and Josh had his leg and it you were, you know, I, I'm such a big believer in being in the right place at the right time. And, mm. you know, uh, you couldn't have been at a better place at that time, right. red to to recognize uh, that Josh was wearing shorts and had a prosthetic leg yeah. and he had a family member who, who was fighting that, that battle mentally and needed, right. needed to, to have that time with Josh that night. And I just, I, yeah. I just, that was such a
0: great part in the book, man. Oh, thanks man. Yeah. It, it, that's, I think, um, one of those stories that I like, I, that makes me love writing all over again because if I hadn't set, if I hadn't had the opportunity to sit down and re- and reflect on that particular night, then for me the significance might have kind of melted away over time, you know. And 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 right. it's just one of those things when you sit down and and you write out your experiences and your stories, even if it's you know just for yourself, um, you know, you're able to appreciate the the effect and the magnitude of of moments like that. Um, because yeah, I mean, it wasn't it it wasn't the the normal kind of we we rarely stayed in hotels um you know and and this was a this was a motel it wasn't anything you know we didn't have a lot of money it wasn't anything fancy um by any means, but it was our chance just just you know kind of give Fred a break from you know you know walking and and exploring and and just let him sleep in a bed and um and uh and for Josh and I to kind of hit the town and um and yeah, we're so glad, so glad we did the
1: theme obviously is stubborn positivity mm-hmm. and uh and here we are in 2020.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> yeah. What has happened in in our lives uh in the last four four months or so yeah. um has affected everybody in in many ways but all in in very similar ways. What do you what do you tell people uh or what would you what would you tell people um in starting to find their way back, you know, Mm -hmm. some people have dealt with, uh, with unemployment. Um, Mm -hmm. some people are, are just trying to figure out how to make ends meet now. Um, other people, you know, there, there are many challenges that people are facing, Mm -hmm. uh, now, obviously, what do you tell people, um, now to just keep them going?
0: Yeah, that's, that's great. And a great question and an important um, thought. And I think, you know, for me, I, I've been so lucky um, during all of this to have to live in Maine, um, and to really not feel a daily impact to my lifestyle. Um, you know, I was I had take I took the last I took um, April, May, June, off from traveling and speaking to finish writing my my next book and um so that my schedule was kind of clear when all a lot of this stuff was really starting and um and i'm lucky to be able to have you know work from home and um and and so it was really you know for me the the impact has been very minimal but um you know coming home to to northern virginia and seeing an area um that has been impacted a, a lot harder and a lot more severely um, you know, and, and just being in contact with family and friends, um, you know, all over the country who are, are, are dealing with it, and you know, much more directly, um, you know, it it makes it makes me, you know, think a lot about 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 that. And I think what I try to say to people, and what I try to say to, to myself, is, you know, now is a time more than ever where. We need to focus on what we do have and what we have going for us and, and what we have to be grateful for. And sometimes it's literally just that you woke up that day and that you woke up that day with a roof over your head and, and a cup of coffee you know you could pour in your face, you know, like that. And sometimes that's, cause that more often than not, that's, that's more than some people have you know and if you don't have that you do have something else to be grateful for um and and as hard as it is for me to say that when i ha- when i have more than enough you know to be grateful for um you know i remember what what it was like to 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 live you know kind of day to day and and uh, that's kind of what we're all doing now we're going day to day it's like feels like every day you wake up and you have to put on your armor and you have to 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 face these challenges that you never thought you'd have to. Um, but I, I think, um, you know, as a country and, and as people, we, we're very much equipped for this. Um, you know, we, we, we're, we're, we're supposed to be this culture that is, is compassionate and, and loving and supportive of everybody regardless right and and i think this virus is a test of that and despite what i think we're being told you know in the media and, and stuff like that you know and i everybody wants to finger point at everybody else but <clears throat> we're doing a I think culturally we're we're doing okay we're doing a good job and as long as we continue to to think about um the the duty that comes with being an american and the 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 the, the fragility of our way of life and is you know is a is hanging in the balance um and it's on display you know to to all of us um and i hope that that one of the good things that comes from this is that we all see that very clearly and and um And going forward, it will be something that we really value truly as a country, you know. Because those of us that have served, and and those of us that you know have you know even just traveled to other parts of the of the world, uh, you know, you see how people how people live, and and a lot of it's beautiful, but but a lot of it is, you know, very restricted. And, And just the idea that Josh and I and Fred could just get in a car and drive as far as we did, uninhibited by any borders. Or any laws or any restrictions is incredible and it's rare in the world, you know. And, and I remember like coming across people from Europe and all over the place on on that on that summer, you know. And and they were like, "Yeah, we, this is our vacation. Like, we're from Germany and and we wanted to come to America and rent an RV." And they they flew into you know into D.C. and they rented an RV and they and they were going to drive it across the country and fly home, you know. And um, it's this, it's it's okay to take it for granted because that's kind of the how free we're supposed to be. You know, like we can take that, that kind of thing for granted, but now we're in a moment in time where, you know, we really have to, um, have to take stock of, of, of what we have going for us and be stubbornly positive. Um, you know, which, which is, isn't easy. Um, but it's important, you know, and we have a duty to, to take, to take this seriously, you know, if not for yourself, for, for your neighbors and for your family and for your community and, and for your country. I, I'm confident that it's nothing we can't, we can't handle. Um, you know, when, when we just remember that, you know, we're, we're a unified country and we're very different people and that is what makes us so special. You know, and and it's there's nothing like it in the world.
1: We all share the the same responsibility now, and um, you know, as I think, as, as long as everybody remembers that and and sticks together, uh, we'll definitely get through this. That's for sure. Craig, man, I I want to I want to thank you for your service, and uh, and and Fred as well for what what he's doing with you out in the the communities and across the country. Um, I think it's it's great that that you guys get to go out and, and tell your story. Um, I, I know you said you, you took the last few months off to finish the book. And, uh, I think I saw a few days ago that, that it has a release date now.
0: Yeah. So yeah, the next it'll be called, it's called second chances. Um, and yeah, it'll be out in March, March of 2021. Awesome. And the initial, um, feedback from the publisher, Harper um, and just a couple other people that in the publishing world that have that have read it um there's a lot of excitement a lot of a lot of really really um positive stuff again coming coming back from it and i'm just so proud of it and uh really just can't wait to 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 have another book out there um and i write uh, i write a, a little bit more about about mississippi um and about that that trip in in um in this book and and it's, you know, it, it, it will stand on its own. You know, you can, you won't have to have read Craig and Fred to, to, to pick up second chances. Um, I would of course encourage you to, <laughs> to read both. Definitely. I mean, like I didn't want it to anyway, be like a sequel. You know, I didn't want it to, you know, to feel like Craig and Fred too. It's very much its own, um, its own book. And, and, it, and, and uh, Fred is uh, very present in it, but um it's a lot, much more about other people and other dogs, um, specifically uh, um, uh, people who are incarcerated uh, in Maine State Prison. Uh, and wow. uh, I've been, I spent the last year and a half volunteering up there with, uh, with veterans who are incarcerated <laughs> and uh, the dogs that they're training to be service dogs and their stories are, are incredible and, and, and painful in a lot of ways, but um, you know a, a lot like the times we're facing now, um, you know, we have a, a huge element of our population that um, you know is facing, has been facing, you know, really harsh and and um, and unforgiving circumstances for a long time. You know, and 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 um, we're getting a little taste of it now um, by having our freedoms restricted and our lifestyle restricted. Um, and and uh, we can learn a lot of lessons from from people who, who are in the system, um, you know, and that's kind of interesting to think about. Um, but yeah, I mean, just going back to, to what we're facing now as a, as a country, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, as a veteran, it's, it's heartbreaking to see how quickly we're, we're able to turn on each other. Um, but I, I hope that, um, you know, we can really see that even when we disagree and even when we feel, um, victimized that the best thing to do when you feel that is to reach out to someone else and is to, to, to take a lesson from Fred and to wag your tail, you know, when you feel hurt or when you feel frustrated or when you feel victimized, you know, when you wag your tail, when you're stubbornly positive, when you find, something to be grateful for, and you do something kind for someone else, despite your situation, Fred is an example of how far you can go. Because if he hadn't done that, if he hadn't defied, you know, the laws of, of the animal kingdom, you know, by wagging his tail at me, you know, he, he would have never, you know, had the life that he does now. And I wouldn't either, you know, and, exactly. and so we're both, I think, I hope um, examples of, how far you can go with gratitude uh, and service could you can't end it any better way than oh, that thanks, uh,
1: i i think uh you know the message to everybody is just stay stubbornly positive and yeah. get out there and uh and if if you need if you if you're challenged if you need help with something find somebody that that can support you and and uh i know you had that 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 support group now with Fred and and Nora and Ruby mm-hmm. and it's a pleasure to to get to talk to you again. Yeah, I'm it's great to see. Really you, looking forward to the new book.
0: Yeah, uh, thank you so much. And, and yeah, we're we're very lucky that we we have each other. You know, and 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 our support group now is has extended you know by the thousands because um, you know just the Fred we call it the Fred family. You know, our social media following on Facebook and Instagram. Um, you know it is incredible and we've um, you know really uh, seen the kindness and the love coming from all over the world um, you know in these these last couple of months and people just speaking out about how much they appreciate Fred's message and and uh, that just makes us want to you know continue to, to do what we do and it, it's, it makes me very proud so thank you thanks for having me on and, and uh, supporting our our story, um, you know, and, and, uh, and giving it, giving it a, a big, a big boost.
1: I want to thank Craig again for his service to our country and his time to record this conversation. Be sure to check out the website, fredtheafghan.com or at Fred the Afghan on Facebook and Instagram. Don't forget to subscribe to Pelham Place wherever you listen to podcasts, and be sure to email me feedback or suggestions to pelhamplaceshow at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening, and be safe.